Welcome to Civilly Speaking with host Sean Harris. Each month, Civilly Speaking brings you interviews on practical and timely legal issues on the local and national level. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hello, and welcome to Civilly Speaking, OEJ's podcast for trial lawyers by trial lawyers. I'm your host, Sean Harris. Uh, Before we get started today, a quick sponsor message. Uh, Beacon Rehab specializes in providing information critical for today's cases on personal injury by offering integrated expertise. Beacon is an integrated, accomplished, and experienced nationwide one-stop damage expert. You can contact Ron Smolarski at ron at beaconrehab.com. Our guests today are Conrad Kircher and Ryan McGraw. Conrad and Ryan are both with Ritgers and Ritgers. Conrad is a former Marine Corps Infantry Officer, graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, four-time marathon finisher, and 20-year triathlete. He's built a nationwide reputation as a leader in pursuing perpetrators of sexual abuse and those organizations which enable them. He's been to the High Supreme Court four times since 2005 on behalf of survivors of child sexual abuse and handles cases throughout Ohio. Ryan is a trial lawyer with a history of success in child sex abuse, civil rights, Title IX, and employment cases. He also serves as outside counsel for business clients on a wide range of issues, including entity selection and formation, contract review, and the drafting of employment agreements and manuals. He's selected for and included in the 2017 Super Lawyers Rising Stars, which recognizes the best attorneys under 40 in the state of Ohio. Conrad, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking. Thank you, Sean. Um, You know, the the topical issue uh, before Ohio uh, that Ohio lawyers are thinking about when we think about uh, child sexual abuse cases is the Brandt case that's going, that is uh, going to be argued in the High Supreme Court. Tell us about that case and, and what your thoughts are. Yeah, Sean, um, this is this is a really important case, um, most notably because it's challenging Ohio's damages caps as it applies to child sex abuse survivors. Um, as we all unfortunately know, damages, non-economic damages in, in this state are capped. Um, the, the facts of the Brandt case are, are pretty sad. Uh, a young woman, she was between the ages of 11 and 12 years old, and she was abused by a father, a friend of her father, um, over 30 times. Uh, some of those uh, instances of abuse were recorded and maintained uh, by the perpetrator uh, in this case. And she suffers from a myriad of, of psychological uh, challenges, disorders. Um, she's had a, a rough go of it. And a lawyer in Columbus by the name of John Fitch, who has who's done a, a lot of, of work on these damages caps and should be commended for, for his work in this case, um, tried the case to a jury and got $134 million in, in a verdict. And the trial court was, was handcuffed to reduce that to, to $250,000. Um, big sort of, you know, kick to the gut. Uh, if, if you will. So that case has made its way up to the Ohio Supreme Court, and there's sort of two, two big issues uh, that are before the court. The first is whether the damages caps as applied to child sex abuse victims is constitutional. Um, that issue was before the court back in 2016 uh, in the Jessica Simpkins case, and the court said, hey, 
in this case, there's no uh, there's no difference for the survivor with respect to damages than there is for any other personal injury um, plaintiff. And it left open the possibility that there might be some case where psychological injuries were so significant that the damages cap shouldn't apply. Um, so that that is one issue that's up there. Uh, the second is sort of whether these damages caps are constitutional at all. Uh, there's the Arbino case from the mid-2000s, which said, uh, yeah, these damages caps are fine. So there's two sort of challenges to that. I think what Conrad and I think is sort of the strongest argument in that case is the treatment of physical injuries versus psychological injuries is unconstitutional. There shouldn't injuries to your brain should be treated no differently than permanent injuries to your body, which would allow you to, to exceed the caps. Um, but we, we recognize there's an uphill battle. Three of the Supreme Court justices didn't even want to hear the case. Uh, obviously, we need, we need four uh, to, to rule in our favor. So you know, kudos to the OAJ amicus committee for, for filing uh, a brief in support of, of this case. We've got a strong opposition on the other side. Um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has recently filed an amicus brief, um, and the defendant in that case, uh, who was represented by a, a sort of a standard defense lawyer, all of a sudden he's defended by a pretty well-known and prominent uh, attorney in Columbus. I don't think it's any coincidence. I think people see this as a real, a real hot button, hot button issue. So, stay tuned. That case is not set for oral argument yet, but I know Conrad and I and OAJ in particular will be watching it closely. And Conrad Ryan mentioned obviously in, in child sex abuse cases, we're talking about um, primarily emotional, psychological harm. What are, are there developments uh, with brain trauma research these days that are helping support these cases? Yeah, there's some very fascinating research going on right now in the medical community that shows that when a child uh, when a child suffers psychological trauma from sexual abuse, the brain has physical changes. So, you know, when we talk about exceptions to the caps. One exception is permanent physical deformity. Well, this medical research seems to be leaning towards indicating that indeed, when a child suffers psychological trauma, the child also has physical permanent deformity to the brain. So we are looking for the right case um, to use some of these researchers. There's one researcher in San Francisco named Walter Seip. He's an MD. And his father was um, actually one of the characters in the Spotlight film, uh, true, true character. He was a um, former monk who then did some research on celibacy of priests. And in the Spotlight series, the reporters relied on him for that statistical research. Well, that individual's name was Richard Seip. His son, Walter, is the one now doing this uh, fascinating medical research. And is there legislation currently pending on the on these cases too? Yeah, so there there is legislation pending. Um, it was introduced uh, by representatives Boggs and Russo. Uh, I believe it's House Bill 199, uh, which eliminates the caps in cases of sexual assault and rape. Um, the reality is that it probably it hasn't gotten a hearing 
yet. And it's been introduced a couple times, right? Or no? We have, that, that bill has certainly been introduced, it seems like almost on a, every time there's a new General Assembly, um, either these two representatives or, or two others will introduce this bill and it won't even get to a hearing. And there, there's been some, you know, rumblings that, oh, the legislature would consider a change to the caps as it relates to the intentional tort feeser. Uh, and, you know, people think, oh, this is the person who's actually physically causing the harm. But the reality of any change like that is that it's going to make virtually no difference uh, from a collection standpoint for these survivors, because oftentimes these perpetrators are not well-known sports athletes and, you know, or, or entertainers or, or anyone who has the ability to, to pay any type of judgment. So importantly, House Bill 199 includes organizations which negligently facilitate the abuse. So that is it going to hear, get a hearing? I don't know. If it would, I think um, you know there'd be a lot of public outcry um, for for the reality of what these survivors go through. You know, and some of the, the the trauma research that's out there that Conrad has just talked about. You know, these are permanent changes to the brain, um, and these are these are injuries which will last survivors a lifetime. So, you know, we're we're hopeful that the legislature will get its act together, but not overly optimistic by the way ryan speaking and 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 this this idea of physical changes to the brain is that is that argument being raised in the brant case i don't believe it's being raised in the brant case uh which is good i mean i think from our perspective if if we're unsuccessful in brant on the facts this gives us the next attack to damages caps in cases like this. So like Conrad said, we're, we're looking for the right case to, to bring that. Uh, we, we expect heavy, heavy litigation defense with respect to that. Um, but even if we lose Brandt, which we hope we don't, uh, we're, we're hopeful that that's the next um, challenge because as Conrad talked about, you know, being able to show that there's a permanent disfigurement in the brain by the plain language of the statute, that that should apply. And yeah, you, you don't even have to get into like equal protection or constitutional grounds. The statute says permanent physical deformity. Exactly. And right now, you know, I think that what you would really need for something like this is you could probably take a brain scan of a survivor of abuse and say, oh yeah, this doesn't look right. But well, you've got nothing to compare it to. We all don't walk around carrying brain scans of our of our brains for, you know, I got one when I was 18, I got one when I'm 20, so if I, I'll be able to tell if there's any change. Um, but this, this cutting edge research is gonna be able to, so we don't have to rely on a pre and post um, brain scan, so. For lawyers handling uh, child sex abuse cases, talk to us about um, practice pointers, things to, uh, to keep in mind for handling these kinds of cases. Yeah, I'd, I'd encourage people to look at a concept that's been developing for the past 10 years or something called institutional betrayal. Now, when a, a child is abused by an authority figure, there's going to be a lot of psychological trauma done by that, that fact that it was an authority figure. But I'm talking about cases where maybe it was peer-on-peer -peer abuse, okay? And the child reports the abuse to the institution, whether it's a school, a youth organization, a religious organization, 
and the organization doesn't act appropriately. Maybe they doubt the child's report. Maybe they protect the perpetrator. Um, maybe they minimize the, the uh, allegations. The child can be more harmed by that institutional betrayal than by the abuse by the peer. And there are good forensic psychologists who can um, you know, evaluate the child and determine whether in fact that's true. And, and in many cases we've seen uh, it is true. So inst institutional betrayal is a concept that can maximize damages in a case and put the focus on the institution rather than the perpetrator. Um, you know, one other thing is that I think people shy away from cases like this because the children often have pre-existing harms. Um, perpetrators pick vulnerable children, and, and the children are vulnerable because of domestic situations. Maybe they're, uh, they were abused by a peer in the past, and so the authority figure manipulates these children. Well, I'd encourage people not to shy away from pre-existing harm because um, it's, it's relatively easy for a forensic psychologist to differentiate the harm and to say, yes, you know, certainly the child had a baseline, but this perpetrator, this authority figure, exacerbated or, you know, multiplied the, that baseline. That's, that's an interesting point. I mean, the, the argument is almost that the pre-existing condition, the vulnerability, is what caused or what, you know, what ha made this happen in the first place. That's why they chose this victim. Yeah, it's judo law. You know, you, you take that and you flip it around. And, we, you know, I've seen forensic psychologists do this where the defense attorney says, well, you know, but the child was already harmed, right? And then the forensic psychologist says, well, exactly. That's why he was chosen by your client you know, or by, by your organization's employee. So they're going to be effective. And just kind of underscoring the importance of forensic psychology in these cases, because in terms of maximizing damages, what a good forensic psychologist will be able to do is extrapolate, hey, what is the level of treatment that this survivor is going to need for the extent of his or her life? That allows you to sort of we call it blackboarding, right? You blackboard economic damages. So it, you know, it doesn't change drastically the non-economic damages cap, you know, it may move you from 250 to 350. But, you know, if you've got an economist who will blackboard $150,000 in future treatment needs for, for this survivor, again, it's, you know, even that $100,000 is a huge, is a huge jump. So, you know, can't underscore the importance of, you know, forensic psychology in, in these cases. Sean, I also think that anyone interested in handling these kinds of cases needs to realize that uh, civil litigation is a part of the healing process for these survivors. Um, in these cases, it truly isn't about the money. It's about validation. And when a survivor is strong enough to come forward and want to pursue civil litigation, um, they are saying, I own this. It wasn't my fault. I'm not ashamed. I want to hold my perpetrator accountable, the entity that facilitated this. I want to hold them accountable and I want to re regain control of my life. Um, so 2010, Actually, in 2008, uh, parents came to me with their 16-year-old daughter who had just reported that she'd been 
repeatedly sexually molested by an elderly neighbor. The elderly neighbor would take the girl and her younger sister off the school bus and entertain them until the parents came home from, from work. Well, he was sexually abusing the older daughter uh, for, for several years, and she never reported it. When she finally did report it at the age of 16, the perpetrator ran to get a criminal defense attorney and got a quick plea and, and went to prison for two years, which uh, made the family very angry. So the family came to me and they wanted to pursue some civil litigation. And I, I talked with them and, and the young girl. And the, the girl was an introvert. She'd never had a boyfriend. She barely would say a word. And I thought, well, this girl will never go to trial, you know, but, but I'm going to do what I can. We'll go ahead and pursue the case. And two years later, it's time for trial. Two years later, she's now 18. It's now her case. You know, her parents can't make the decision on what to do. She's now 18. It's her case. So the family of the perpetrator had, had come up with $35,000 to avoid trial. First it was 20, then it was 25, then they maxed out at 35,000. So I talked to the girl three weeks before trial and I said, Brittany, the family's come up with $35,000. Um, it's the most they can come up with. Um, you know, you can use it for therapy, uh, schooling, but uh, you know, if, if you don't want to do that, we can go to trial and, and tell your story. She sat up in her chair, and remember, I have not heard this girl say more than four or five sentences the whole two years that I've been representing her. She sits up in her chair, and she looks at me and says, I want to tell my story. And I said, good for you, Brittany. Let's go tell your story. So we went to trial, and uh, it was the most delicate direct examination I've ever had to do because Brittany wanted to tell her story, but she could only do it like four or five words at a time. And so my direct examination was basically, okay, Brittany, what happened next? And then what happened? And what happened next? And she told her story and the jury ate it up. They were sitting on pins and needles. So they go out, the, the jury deliberates for 45 minutes and comes back with $3.6 million verdict. We still only collected the $35,000, but that wasn't the point of it. And when the jury went out, I looked at Brittany and I said, Brittany, did you hear what the jury said? And she looked at me with a kind of quizzical look on her face. I said, Brittany, did you hear what they said? Did you hear what they told you? And again, she's looking at me quizzically. I said, they told you it wasn't your fault. And she got, you know, a little smirk on her face. And she said, yeah, it wasn't my fault. And that's been 11 years ago. Um, since then, she, she's got a stable job in medical billing. She has a boyfriend. She's kept in touch with me over the years. Um, she even spoke at a seminar uh, at my request to a, a group of uh, victims advocates on the benefits of civil litigation and how much it meant to her to, to go through that trial and recapture her life. Well, Conrad, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking. Thanks for having us. If you like our podcast and want to learn more, check us out on Spotify or on iTunes or on civillyspeaking.com, and we'll see you here on the next episode of Civilly Speaking.